We've been talking about our appendices, and it I, looks like this is going to be the last Sunday we're in this, and I want to wrap up. We started two weeks ago. We dealt with the issue of homosexuality, and I want to wrap that up today, talking a little bit about same-sex attraction as a different thing than that, but part of that whole issue and picture. And uh, my biggest concern this morning is that we gain an understanding of how God would have us to respond to this whole lifestyle. And I think that's critical for you and I. I think that probably is every bit as critical as the issue itself. And I think you'll see why as we go through. So let me give you a quick summary of where we were two weeks ago as we talked about what the Bible teaches about homosexuality. First of all, it is very important that we get from the outset that we believe, we must believe, we must start here, we must put our feet down in the authority of the Word of God. Our statement of faith, which is based on the Bible, God's Word says that the Bible is the final authority for what we believe and how we live. What we believe and how we live. And that's critical. And and we have to start put our feet down right there because if not, what we believe about this whole subject of homosexuality, it's open to all kinds of ideas and opinions and everything else under the sun. And we've got to stand on the truth of the Word of God as our final authority. And we said this as we went through it, that the Bible, the consistent teaching, the consistent teaching of the Bible is clear. God forbids homosexual activity. Now that is clear. We went through the Word of God. We looked at six major passages in the Bible, three from the Old Testament, three from the New Testament, and we saw that the Bible condemns every form of sexual activity, not just homosexual activity, every form of sexual activity outside of a marriage between a husband and wife. Any Sexual activity outside of the marriage of a man and woman is condemned by God. It's critical that we get that, that we understand that. This is what God's Word says. It's not my opinion. It's not anybody else's opinion. It's what God says. And we kind of wrapped it up with this statement. Homosexual activity is not an act to be celebrated, but a sin to be forsaken and forgiven. It can be forsaken. And God does forgive sin, and so must we as those who know him. And just so, again, we're on the same page with our terminology. Here's a definition that we used. Homosexuality is the determined, self-determined activity of those engaged in sexual behavior with persons of the same sex. That's how Kevin DeYoung in his book uh, defines that. And uh, so keep that in mind. And so after having talked about what the Bible teaches about homosexuality, today we want to ask and answer this question, how then should we respond? How then should we respond? If we understand the truth of what God's Word teaches on homosexual activity, we must understand how we should respond. You see, our response is a big deal, folks. We as believers are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. And, and as we look at this, what do we do when people 
who don't view the Bible as authoritative get in a discussion with us. I, I hope not argument. I hope discussion. But what do we do when uh, people don't view the Bible as authoritative? There was a day when even though people didn't all agree on all the moral issues in our world, most people would at least respect the Bible as a source of help in our culture. They would look at it as something to be considered and respected in our culture, not today. I'm sure that doesn't surprise you, but in some of my reading, came across this, this uh, little fact. Back in 1963, in the Los Angeles Times, of all papers, the Los Angeles Times, 1963, regularly put out a Bible reading schedule. 1963. And, and so there was that understanding and respect given to the word of God. So how do we who believe in the authoritative word of God today respond when those in our culture, most of those in our culture do not? It seems at times we as believers are not responding well. And I think we must rethink our responses. Our responses can create misunderstanding, can hurt the cause of Christ rather than help. And I think it's critical that we understand our response to what's going on all around us, not just in the LGBTQ plus community, but in every area of our lives, our response is those who know Jesus is critical and it needs to be a response of grace and truth always. Grace and truth. Now, we talked two weeks ago about a lot of truth. We shared with you, as I mentioned, those six passages from the Word of God. There are a few others, but those were the main ones, and we looked at that was the truth. And we need to talk about grace. Now, we're going to continue to re rely on the truth of the Word of God today um, but we want to focus on grace. And as we talk about grace and truth, you know, uh, we usually tend to respond with one or the other. In fact, our individual tendency is usually one or the other. Uh, I am one who tends to respond more from the truth perspective, right? Tell me, this is what the truth is. And, and sometimes lack the grace that needs to go along with that truth. Others are very, very gracious and sometimes miss the truth or don't emphasize the truth enough. And, 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 and it's usually one or the other, not always, but that typically is how we respond. And today, I want you to know we must respond with both grace and truth, but I want to direct your attention more to the grace side of things because we talked about the truth a couple of weeks ago, and in John chapter 1 and verse 14, we're told that Jesus was full of grace and truth. And our mission says we want to see more people become more like Jesus. If we are going to become more like Jesus, we must also respond with grace and truth. Our lives must be full of grace 
and truth. For those of us who know Jesus Christ, it must be evident that our lives are full of grace and truth. And as we read that, John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word, that's Jesus Christ, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We could say that's the Christmas story right there. We talk about the Christmas story in Matthew and Luke, right? But there it is in the Gospel of John. It's not the Christmas story per se, but, but, but that one phrase, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That is the birth of Jesus Christ. That is what Christmas is all about. So it really is in the Gospel of John as well. And John goes on. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. Look at that. Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. That's why it is critical that we always talk about, we, uh, you know, the, the, the wristbands. It used to be WWJD, what would Jesus do? Jesus did respond. He was full of grace and truth. And it is critical that we respond the same way. That requires humility. That requires love that only God can give. It's what Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15, where we are told that we ought to be speaking the truth in love. That's full of grace and truth. So please open your Bibles with me this morning to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. We want to look at uh, Paul's letter to Titus there. And I want to look at the first three verses of of chapter 3. Paul had challenged Titus, had, had commissioned him in a sense to plant some churches and to minister to the churches that were on the island of Crete, which is part of Greece. And so they were there, and, and, and Titus was to uh, strengthen those churches, to build them up. And, and, and Paul said there in the midst of all of that, and he said, hey, you guys, you're in the middle of a culture with authorities and people there in the island of Crete who, who think and live differently than those who know Jesus Christ. The people on Crete without God we're not friends of Jesus Christ. They didn't care about the church. And so Paul is challenging Titus as he's there to plant churches and to make sure that he understands that the authorities and the people that are there are living differently. They believe differently. They do not look at God as authority. They do not look at the Word of God, the written Word, not the New Testament at that time, that they had. They don't consider it their authority. And so what does Paul tell Titus that he ought to do? Well, look at chapter 3, verse 1. Remind the people. Paul says, Titus, you have to remind the people. Remind those who know Jesus. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. Here it is again. We typically go to Romans 13 or 1 Peter 2. Here it is in Titus. This is, this is there, it's everywhere, that we be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. So there's what he's saying. Titus, as you're going around planting churches, strengthening churches, ministering to the believers, remind them as you're sharing the gospel is you're telling people about Jesus, that you remind them that they are to do whatever is good, 
to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, always gentle towards everyone. Not just those in the church, but those outside the church as well. He's saying you are to do that. Now this is tough. This is a day and age much like we're living in today. We're living in a culture with with many of our leaders and people around us who are not sympathetic to the things of God, who do not view the Word of God as the final authority for what they believe and how they live. How are we to conduct ourselves? How are we to respond to that, that whole business of people not believing in the authority of the Word of God? Well, it's the same thing. We are to do whatever is good. We are to slander no one. We are to be peaceable. We are to be considerate. We are to always be gentle to everyone. Today, to those who stand opposed to the message we live and teach and preach, we must respond that way. Why? Well, look at verse 3. Because, because at one time we too You and I who know Jesus, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That was us, folks, before Jesus. Huh? That's what Paul's reminding He says, remind them how we treat one another because we were that way before Christ saved us. Titus was planting churches and Paul was saying it is critical that you respond appropriately in a culture without God. So this morning, how should we then respond? I want to give you five questions to ask yourself. How should we then respond in a culture, living in a culture that is not friendly to the things of God, that doesn't care about the Bible as the final authority for what we believe and how we live. How are we to respond? Well, here's some questions that we need to ask ourselves. Number one, am I more focused on how I am being treated than how I am treating others? Now, I have to say again, and I, I may have uh, skipped over the slide, had a slide there of the, we showed a couple weeks ago, Kevin DeYoung's book, called uh, What Does the Bible Teach About Homosexuality? I would highly recommend this if you're interested in reading on that. He digs into the passages of the Word of God and deals with that as we did a couple of weeks ago. As I mentioned to you also, I talked to a friend of mine who has preached on this and he graciously uh, sent me his PowerPoint. So I uh, have edited some, but is the basis for what I've been sharing uh, two weeks ago and today. And I want to give credit where credit is due. So just as we talk about There it is. And so as we talk about this, am I more focused on how I'm being treated than how I'm treating others? Because, you know, it seems that when we as followers of Jesus today are mistreated because of what we believe, it's easy for us to be really loud about it. We're not bashful raising our voices to tell how unfairly we as believers are being treated. We make it about us many times. And I don't believe that's going to help the cause of Christ. 
You see, it's never about us. Never. In fact, it should be more about how we treat others, about how we treat those who disagree. It must be about that. You've heard the whole idea that you might win the battle but lose the war. And sometimes in our loudness, in, in, in being treated unfairly and all the rest of that, listen, this is what Jesus said about that. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Blessed are you. Happy are you. In the favor of God are you when we're persecuted, when we're insulted, when people say all kinds of evil things against us falsely. Woohoo! You say, am I supposed to be happy about that? Well, look at verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. Yes. Yes. Why? Because that's what God said. This is what Jesus taught. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, we don't rejoice in the evil around us. That's not what Jesus was saying. We don't rejoice in the, in the ugly, evil, dark, sinful behavior. We don't rejoice in, in, in how we may be insulted and persecuted. That's not what he says you rejoice in. He says you rejoice in, in, in what's happening because great is your reward in heaven. Because as we stand for the name of God, we will be rewarded. That's why he says rejoice. And be glad. And it is critical that we understand that our response, listen, be, I, I am not saying we don't stand for the truth. I, absolutely not. We should, we should always stand for the truth. And we should do what we can to speak up and be heard. Yes. We should get involved in our community, even in politics. Yes. Believers can be involved in politics. Yes but not in a way that our actions and our attitudes are so loud that nobody can hear what we're saying. And that's what we do sometimes, folks. Our attitudes and our actions are so ugly and so loud in the name of Jesus that nobody hears a word we're saying because we're not godly in our response. And that is critical. Let's surprise people we disagree with by how we treat them. Did you get that? Let's surprise people we disagree with by how we treat them. Number two, another question. Am I targeting less popular forms of sin while ignoring more common ones? Reading Kevin's book, um, he only addressed two that are typically brought up by the progressive Christianity side of the crowd who would support 
homosexual activity and behavior and, and they, would, they would bring up gluttony and divorce. Why doesn't the church deal with gluttony and divorce? Why does the church talk about homosexuality when gluttony and divorce in the church is running rampant? And we could spend time talking about those. I'm not going to do it because there's not just gluttony and divorce that we could talk about, right? We could talk about greed. We could talk about lying or dishonesty. We could talk about gossip. We could talk about a divisive spirit. We could talk about judgmental attitudes. All of these and more exist in God's people, exist in the church. And we ought to deal with them. And absolutely, we need to deal with our own sin. We need to own our sin and repent. And it's critical that we understand just because we may not be consistent in dealing with the more obvious sins that that makes it wrong to talk about the sins that may not be talked about that much throughout the Word of God comparatively. On the other hand, repentance is critical for all of our sin, including homosexuality. And as we talk about that as believers today, Change of mind that results in change of life. That's repentance. A change of mind, thinking that when we think about it and consider it, we change our life. And what are we talking about? Well, first of all, and this is just all over. If you'll read theology books, you'll find out a change of mind about ourselves, that we are sinners, that we are not many times pleasing to God, even for those of us who know Jesus. A change of mind about our sin. We admit our sin. We don't call it a mistake. We don't try to tiptoe around it and justify, well, if you knew how I was treated or if you knew what I've experienced or if you knew my circumstances in life, you'd understand, no, we own our sin. We confess it, 1 John 1, 9, and then we change our mind about God. That God is never happy with our sin. That God, yes, he's loving, but he's also holy and he's just and he's forgiving. We change our mind about ourself, about our sin and about our God. And then we change. That's repentance, folks. It's not just saying, oh, oh sorry. It's change. It's repentance. And we need to deal with our sin. But we must also remember that the remedy to the negligence may be dealing with these kinds of sins is not more negligence by not dealing with the sin of homosexuality. We must deal with all sin. We must change. Thirdly, am I expecting people who don't follow Christ to obey Christ? Do I expect people who don't know Jesus to live like they do? Do we expect people who have no relationship whatsoever with Jesus Christ, who have never put their faith and trust in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sin, who have therefore never been forgiven, do we expect them to act like we who have been forgiven, who do know Jesus? We shouldn't. Because they can't. It's impossible. Now, that doesn't mean every unsaved person is as bad as he absolutely can be. There are a lot of very good, moral, unsaved people on their way to hell. You understand that? 
I remember as a youth pastor dealing with this and talking with our students about this whole business of dating unsaved. And, and, and many times we'd get the response, well, maybe from the girls, well, I know a whole lot nicer unsaved guys than I do saved guys. Well, you might, but that doesn't change the, the fact of the matter. God's pretty clear about not being unequally yoked together. So we many times expect people who don't know Jesus to live as if they did. That's getting the cart before the horse, folks. People who don't know Jesus cannot act or live like they do. You see, I heard this years ago. I remember this in Bible college, a chapel speaker. Now, a lot of times in Bible college chapel, um, sometimes you're studying for the test the next hour. Uh, sorry. I'm, I'm glad there's none of my former professors here, but um, I, I'm sure it still happens today. Um, you know, but... I remember this quote, I got it, one, one chapel message I was listening, and it was very clear, and I've never forgotten it, and it was simply this, God never intended us to make the world a better place to go to hell from. And sometimes that's what we're out to do. We think if we get all the right people in office that the world will change and it'll be fine. Folks, the world can change and be fine, but people are still lost and going to hell without Jesus. Whether our choice of politician is in office or not. You see, our goal is not to moralize our culture. Our goal is to provide and, and proclaim, not provide, Jesus did that, but to proclaim to our culture, salvation is found only in Jesus Christ. Folks, I'm not bothered as much with those who don't know Jesus who are in a homosexual relationship. Now, don't get me wrong. Listen to me carefully. I don't like it. I don't approve of that behavior. But I'm not as bothered by an unsaved person, person who doesn't know Jesus, involved in a homosexual relationship, acting out that behavior as I am with those who claim to know Jesus and are in a homosexual relationship or a sinful heterosexual relationship. Because both are wrong. You see, we know better as those who've been saved by the blood of Christ. People who don't know Jesus don't know better. In fact, they don't have the ability to please God. Question number four, am I responding to homosexual sin the same way I would respond to a similar heterosexual sin? Often in these things, and I've had a few questions, but they're the same questions that we in the church have been asking for a while. Well, should I go to a gay marriage? That's a hard one. Let me ask you this. Would you go to a sinful heterosexual marriage? Would you go to a heterosexual marriage where the bride and groom have been living together and sleeping together for a few years? You have to answer that question too. And as you begin to answer those kinds of questions, you, you, you begin to realize maybe it's not, somebody might say, well, I, 
yeah, I know a guy and a girl, and they've been living together for a while, but I want to support them. Okay, well, what about the homosexual couple who need Jesus? Do you want to support them? I'm not giving you an answer. I'm asking questions. And maybe you figured by now I'm not going to give you an answer. Because you have to figure that out. You've got to study the Word of God. You've got to know what the Bible teaches if we talk about it in this way. Would you be upset? Let me give you another for instance. If uh, you're students in a, in a public school and uh, all of a sudden you get word that a, a new fourth grade teacher has been hired and that uh, she's a lesbian. And you're ready to march right down to the principal's office and have a conversation with the principal about having hired a lesbian fourth grade teacher. Let me ask you this. How would you respond if you heard that the school hired a fourth grade teacher as a woman who had a live-in boyfriend and who'd been living with him for a number of years and wasn't married? Would you react the same way? Would you get up in arms and be ready to move down the street to go talk to the principal about that situation? Now, I'm not talking about either one of them flaunting that lifestyle or anything else. I'm just talking about, okay, the lesbian is there teaching and, and, and getting your kids an education or the woman who's living with her boyfriend, not married, is just providing an education. I, we have to think about those kinds. As we answer those questions, am I responding to homosexual sin the same way I respond to a similar heterosexual sin? See, the Bible says much more about how we as believers should deal with heterosexual sin than it does homosexual sin. You realize that? It's critical that we understand both of those. Don't elevate one sexual sin above another. We need to be consistent with all of it. And as we think that through, we need to commit that. Then question number five, am I committed to suffering well? Um... Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. This is what Peter says. 1 Peter 4, 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. What's he talking about? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 13, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Wow, Paul's not the only, or Jesus isn't the only one that talks about rejoicing when we're persecuted and insulted for his name. Peter says it, rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, the fiery ordeal, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. We could read down through the verses 14 and 15 where Peter says, now listen, if as a believer you're persecuted and you're suffering because you're an obnoxious person or because you're wrong or because you sin, don't rejoice in that. That's not what Peter's talking about. But then he says in verse 16, verse 16, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. Am I committed to suffering well? 
Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, all, all, all who live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you're living godly, if you're living your life, if you're letting your light shine, you will suffer persecution. That's what the Bible tells us. Are we doing that well? You see, one of my concerns is, as we've dealt with things in recent days is that we've gotten distracted by a lot of stuff. All of the things related to COVID and, and all of what's going on, whether you think there's a conspiracy out there or not, it quite honestly, it doesn't matter to me one way or the other because I know God knows what's going on. But all of this stuff has become a distraction from the things that we ought to be doing for the glory of God. We sit around complaining about how hard life is and about how evil and dark and sinful our culture is and people within our culture. Folks, okay, I get it. We don't like it. It's wrong. It's not what's taught in the Bible, all this stuff. But listen, it's not going to get better. Read your Bible. It's not going to get better. It'll probably get worse the longer we're here. The longer it takes Jesus to return, and I don't mean that like he's taking his time. No, he has a plan. We don't know when he's coming. But until he does, it's not going to get better, folks. There's no point in complaining about it because we sit around and whine and groan and moan and grumble and mumble and complain and Listen, that's the world in which we live without God. We know the answer. And it's Jesus. We need to suffer well. So how do we respond with truth and grace? Well, let me give you some statements, questions. How you say what you say is important as what you say. How you say what you say is as important as what you say because of what we talked about earlier. If we don't respond well, people won't listen to what we have to say. I remember my mom always telling me, and she would say, Glenn, I need to talk to you. What? I didn't do anything. This is what I said, and I would hear, it's not what you said, but it's how you said it. Come on, I know more of you have heard that than just me. Right? She would say, it's not what you said, but how you said it. That's true for us as believers today. It's always wrong to be rude. Did you hear me? That's not Christ-like behavior. Even, even, in the name of biblical morality. It is never right to be rude. And even when we're trying to say the truth and all the rest of it, God expects us to do so in a godly way. I already shared with you Ephesians 5, 4, 15. Speak the truth in love. And we need to understand that. It is critical. And let me just say here, we could really spend the rest of the morning. The same holds true on social media, folks. Man, I'm glad I don't do it. 
Because I've had people tell me we probably would have to be doing more church discipline than typically we do. <laughs> I, don't, I hope that's not really true, but maybe an exaggeration. But on the other hand, some would say, no, it's absolutely not. You see, social media is not the place for you to promote what you believe. You can, you can make a kind, loving statement, but as I understand it, there's a lot of ungodly, unloving things said by believers. You know, it's always, I remember when we went to Argentina years ago as a youth group, uh, we took a, a puppet team with us. And in getting ready uh, to do that, practicing, we had some kids that wasn't sure if they had, they'd never done puppets before. But man, we had some of these kids that just were amazing with the puppets. And you know why? Because they had their arm up in the air with some creature on it. And nobody could see them. Nobody knew who had the puppet. And sometimes we get on Facebook or other social media, Twitter or, or Instagram or all of that stuff. I don't even know. There's so many out there. I, and, and, and because nobody can see us, because we hide behind our computer, you know, all of a sudden we say things that we would never say to somebody's face, hopefully. But we shouldn't say it on there either. And, and, and you, you know, can't win an argument on social media. You've heard that before. But you sure can lose one. And probably part of the losing is, I thought they knew Jesus. And they're acting like that or talking like that. I think it's critical. We need to be like Jesus. The Bible does say a gentle answer turns away wrath. Secondly, avoid common statements that lose influence. I just want to rush through, through these three. I don't think it's a wise thing when you're in conversation trying to, to reach someone in the homosexual lifestyle for Christ that you simply let them know, well, homosexuality is a choice. I recognize that probably that would be, for years, what the church thought. Whether or not they were taught it, I, I don't know. And uh, we don't like to hear that because when we hear that it said it's a choice, we then kind of do this little gymnastics in our mind and we say, well, that means if it's not a choice and if they were born that way, that means God created them that way and God couldn't create them that way. Well, we're all born sinners. And we all have a tendency to some kind of sin. I won't ask for a raise of hands, but how we could do it this way. Does anybody know someone who has an anger problem? Oh, thank you, Asa. Appreciate your honesty. Does anybody know someone that has a pride problem? Anybody know somebody who has a problem with pornography? Been that way for years, can't get over it. Were they born that way? Does anybody know somebody who um, is given to gluttony? Anybody know somebody that has a problem with being overweight? Well, wh what do we do with all of that? Were we born that way or did we choose that lifestyle? It really doesn't matter. Because one way or the other, there is sin in our lives that needs to be overcome and God has given us the power to overcome it. And a person who doesn't know Jesus can overcome any sin as well when they come to trust Christ. 
If you repent, God will remove your same-sex attraction. Anybody know an alcoholic who got saved and still struggled with alcohol? Anybody know any kind of addiction? David, we have our second session rolling with uh, Life Catalyst, talking about addiction, how to minister to people with addiction. And I think you'll find that with all kinds of addictions, just because somebody trusts Christ, Taylor would tell us that, right, Dave? Just because somebody trusts Christ doesn't mean that addiction immediately goes away. Doesn't mean that it can't go away. Doesn't mean that there can't be victory. But just because you repent, God doesn't necessarily remove your same-sex attraction. Repentance is necessary. Faith in Christ is necessary. But growth still must happen. Thirdly, love the sinner, hate the sin. We've all probably said that. Well, with a homosexual person, that doesn't work because you're saying the same thing. You see, because their sin is who they are. For a homosexual, their sin is their identity. So when we say love the sinner but hate the sin, we're still saying we hate who you are. You see, because it's not about what they do, it's about who they are. And, and they still sense that we don't love them. And folks... We need to love all sinners, no matter what their sin may be. Number three, remember that same-sex attractions are not the same as same-sex actions. That's why I gave you a definition of homosexuality that, that is same-sex sexual behavior. Not all same-sex attracted individuals are involved in same-sex sexual behavior. There are those who are fighting that, just like an addiction. Pastor Paul could probably give us individuals or experiences of situations where, where people are fighting an addiction to alcohol or drugs or whatever, uh, or, or in this regard, are fighting a, 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 an addiction of any kind that, that they're battling and not wanting to give into. That addiction, the same thing happens to a same-sex attracted individual. For years, I didn't, I didn't understand that because I never studied it. I just thought I knew what I knew and believed what I believed and that's what other believers believed and I guess that may be kind of what churches believed and yet there's a difference. And that's why we know that there are people who know Jesus Christ who are struggling with same-sex attraction and who are fighting the sexual behavior that they're tempted to just like a 17-year-old high school boy is fighting heterosexual attraction to a girl and having to battle that. Where do you think pornography comes up? Not just for the guys, for the women too. And so it's important that we understand there's a difference and we need to help those battling. And that's the fourth one here. The church must be a safe place for broken people. Folks, I got to tell you more often than not, it's not been true. Because we're too quick to bring the hammer down. Love the sinner, hate the sin. 
me share with you some truths about those struggling with same-sex attraction. I didn't say homosexual behavior, I said same-sex attraction. First, they did not choose that struggle. They've been trying to unchoose it for years. And if you've ever had an opportunity to talk with a same-sex attracted individual who is fighting that fight, that's what they'd tell you. Fighting it for years. And they need a safe place. And one of the reasons the church has not been a safe place is because they haven't felt like they could speak up and anybody would listen without condemning them and maybe even talking about church discipline. Who would they tell? I heard it put this way. Who, who would a seventh grade boy tell that he had the same sex attraction to other boys? Well, I would hope he could tell a youth worker, he could tell Mitch. Or his parents. But in the church. I would hope that there's someone in the church, in the youth ministry, of those who love him, that he would feel safe saying, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction. I don't know what to do, and I, don't, I hate it, and I can't stop. They believe their suffering is a result of unanswered prayer. could say to that individual and and can I tell you folks this is not just with same-sex attraction it would be any addiction we could go right down the line of all kinds of sexual sins that people involved believers who are struggling to fight it have said I've prayed and prayed and prayed I've asked God take this away help me to have victory and I'd get it and then it'd come right back and I'd what do I do well, pray about it. I have been. They believe their suffering is a result of unanswered prayer for years. No option provides an easy solution in this whole business of same-sex attraction. Because here's three options you can think about. They could choose a gay lifestyle. Now, we're talking about a same-sex attracted individual who, who whatever that may be, if, if they're a believer... They could choose the gay lifestyle, but that would be satisfying and would be certainly unbiblical. They could choose celibacy. I'm not going to be involved with anybody. I'm never going to get married because I know that's wrong. That would be add to the loneliness and add to the unbearableness, but it can be. Now you say, well, I know there are single people of both sexes who who live celibate lives and maybe battle with that singleness because they're not married and would like to get married. That's true. But that's the same kind of a battle that goes on. They could choose heterosexual marriage, but in a lot of cases for a same-sex attracted individual, that may not, I mean, there may be no, no interest whatsoever, no emotion, no romance whatsoever for the opposite sex individual. Marriage doesn't solve that. Listen, folks, marriage doesn't solve heterosexual sin. A lot of impure heterosexual people, all I have to do is get married. They're, I'm struggling with pornography all my life, and all, if, if I can just get married, that'll take care of it. No! Anybody know any married? Well, I don't, that's a, don't raise your hand. Say, anybody know any married people struggling with pornography? Well, there are. Marriage doesn't solve that because it's a spiritual issue in the heart that God can give victory to. 
We need to provide a safe place, folks. The church has to be a safe place. As a youth pastor, I used to tell our students all the time, there is no other place. There, everywhere you go in this world, you may be bullied, you may be made fun of, you may be mocked, you may be, be, be hurt, you may be persecuted, all the rest of it. You may be hated and put down. When you come to this youth group, you ought to feel safe and welcome and warm and accepted and loved by everybody here. That's what the church needs to be. Lastly, the goal is not heterosexuality. The goal is holy sexuality. We sometimes think in dealing with this thing that the key, the solution for a homosexual is to become heterosexual. Come on, no. That's not the answer. Because it won't always happen. The key is holy sexuality. First Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, set apart to God that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And in that, in, that, in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. As we told you, what sins? Sexual immorality. And we saw two weeks ago how that homosexuality fits right in that category. And as we told you and warned you before, verse 7, for God did not call us to be impure, homosexual or heterosexual. I'll say same-sex attracted or heterosexual because I don't want to be confusing but to live a holy life. The goal, the cure for a homosexual is not to become a heterosexual. Well, all they need to do is marry uh, an opposite-sex person and they'll be fine. No! The goal is holy sexuality. So what's the bottom line? How will you respond Followers of Jesus in the middle of a culture that looks at matters of sexuality different than we do. How should we then respond? We need to respond with what Paul said in Titus chapter 3. We need to do what is good. We need to slander no one. We need to be peaceable and considerate and always gentle to everyone. And sometimes the way we react to the sexual sin and all sin in our culture and disagreement all around us with people's lifestyles and all the rest of it we're not peaceable, we're slandering, we're not considerate, we're not gentle. And that's ungodly behavior. And we as believers need to be godly. And we need to remember that many times these people need Jesus. And they needed to hear it from us with truth and grace no matter what their sin. We need to be hard to hate by those with whom we disagree because of how we love them. How are we doing with that? If you're living, if you're here today and you're living with same-sex attraction and you're fighting, you're struggling with it, you're battling at every chance you get, or if you're completely given over to a gay lifestyle, you're involved in homosexual sex sin, either case, understand God loves you. 
understand the gospel is powerful. And when I say God loves you, that's not just take two aspirin and call me in the morning. That's truth. God loves you. The gospel is powerful. Jesus died in your place for your sins. He knows all about you, all about where you are and who you are and what you're involved in, and he loves you too much to allow you to remain in that lifestyle. Grab hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ because he will forgive you. He will deliver you from your sin. He will remove your guilt and shame. He will save and transform your life for the glory of God. Remember, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. We too. But verse 4 says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. Not because of righteous things, good things, any things that we had done, but because of his mercy. Wow. Let me say it again. Let's be hard to hate by those with whom we disagree because of how we love them. If you're here today and you need Jesus, whatever your sexual orientation, God loves you. Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sin. And I'd love to tell you about it. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin. Thank you for the life-transforming power of the gospel. Oh God, as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ who know you, Help us to respond to the sin of all kinds, to the sinners of all kinds who need Jesus. Help us to respond in a way that would honor you, in a way that would speak so loudly of our love for you and of your love for them that they would be under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit of God about their sin and Come to Christ. For it's in his name that I pray. Amen. We're going to sing a song, folks. A couple weeks ago, I asked Paul if we could sing this song. And we've sung it before. The second verse, the night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need his power is displayed. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. 
Through the deepest valley he will lead. Oh, the night has been won and I shall overcome. Yet not I, but through Christ. Christ.